COVID-19 has changed everything, halting life as we know it in its tracks. To respond to this global pandemic and to adapt to this new way of life, we're doing things a bit more DIY than usual. We're not in the studio and we're dispersed all over the country, but we did want to respond to the urgent need for information, bringing to you the voices of some of the leading experts to help us grapple with the new and not so new dimensions of this crisis. It's in this vein that we're calling the series Under the Black Light to uncover the conditions that pre-existed the virus and the cracks in our social structure that the virus can now exploit to wreak maximum havoc. In the coming weeks, we'll be producing live conversations that bring together artists, activists, thought leaders, scholars, service providers, and others on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19. Each Wednesday, we'll bring you a virtual conversation over Zoom, which will then be released as an episode of Intersectionality Matters in the following week. Good evening, everyone. I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, Executive Director of the African American Policy Forum. This week, we're talking COVID, white power, and the unseeing of race again. In recent weeks, people around the world have taken to the streets and rallied for Black lives, for police reform, defunding, and for abolition. There were burgeoning discussions of how structural racism's critique could be central to understanding the combined crises of the moment and deepen the global movements and dialogues that are essential to democracies and humanity's survival. But then, like the mythical Sisyphus who shouldered an impossibly large boulder to the top of the hill only to watch it roll down again, the centrality of racial justice to understanding our twin crises tumbled to the bottom of the hill. Judging from the urgent coverage of the COVID crises on the news this week, it seems in many ways that we're back to taking a power blind lens to mass death. We know that the future of our country is on the line. We know it because it was vividly clear in Kentucky last week when voter suppression showed itself to be alive and well in the United States. We know it because black and brown voters on average wait almost 50% longer to vote than white voters do. We know it because if it were not for a white supremacist status quo, the killings of police officers by white terrorists just last month would have warranted a robust response from Donald Trump. We know it because in this moment when anti-maskers appropriation of I can't breathe threatens to bring about mass death, the elixir of whiteness can persuade people to sacrifice even their own well-being to hold it up. This evening then, we turn the black light to focus on the intersections of these twin pandemics and the social infrastructure that enabled them. I couldn't have a better panel suited to undertake this analysis. We'll begin by hearing from Dr. Kamara Phyllis-Jones. She's senior fellow at the Satcher Health Leadership Institute and the Cardiovascular Research Institute at the Morehouse School of Medicine. We also have Jonathan Metzl, the director of the Department of Medicine, Health and Society at Vanderbilt University and the author of Dying of Whiteness, How Politics of Racial Resentment is killing America's heartland. We'll then hear from Kianga Yamata-Taylor, the Charles Wayne University preceptor at Princeton University and Pulitzer Prize finalist for her book, 
race for profit, how banks and the real estate industry undermined black home ownership. And lastly, Barbara Arnwine, the president and founder of the Transformative Justice Coalition and president emeritus of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Kamar, we've had historians, lawyers, activists, journalists, and writers on Under the Black Light, but you are our first epidemiologist. So I wanna take full advantage of your expertise in helping us cut through the smoke and the mirrors to understand what exactly is happening right now. Both metaphorically and literally, bodies are piling up. And at the same time, our vice president declared yesterday that the administration has been successful in minimizing the damage of the virus, and now states are safely and responsibly reopening. Now, as an epidemiologist and someone who studies public health, can you paint us a picture, first of all, of where we really are with the spread of this disease? And answer the question we all really wanna know, is this grim state of affairs inevitable? Thank you, Kim, for inviting me to be part of this and for that question. So we are in a very, very uh, gravely serious point in the pandemic. We are at the point of exponential spread where one person turns into three people in about four days, and then that turns into nine. And it's almost as if when, the, when it became known that Black and Indigenous and people of color communities across the nation were disproportionately impacted, then the white community felt like, oh, it's just them, that's okay. And the president at that time actually said, reopen America, liberate Michigan, liberate Virginia. And now what they're seeing is still black folks are disproportionately impacted, 2.3 times as many deaths from COVID-19 as white folks, indigenous people about two times as many. We're still disproportionately impacted, but we're not hearing about that anymore. And because we don't know the current level of infection today, because we're not doing the right kind of population-based probability sampling, the idea that we have of the, of the infection, if we just look at numbers of positive folks who are symptomatic, that's a one to two week old picture. If we look at hospitalizations, two to three weeks, if we look at deaths, three to four weeks, and when something is spreading exponential, we don't even know where we're gonna be in a few weeks because it has gone too far. So it can really be going through the roof right now. It's like a forest fire gone wild. At the beginning, like lightning struck at the coast. It struck in California, it struck in you know New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, it struck in Louisiana, Chicago, it struck in Detroit, it struck in some places, and then it was tamped down. And then some folks figured, oh, well, it's just those people. And they came out and they started fanning the flames. The virus has one job, and that's to reproduce itself. And even though black and brown and indigenous folks were the first hit and the hardest hit and continue to be the hardest hit, we are not the only ones hit, but white folks got confused they still were thinking about this kind of biological differences or they were thinking that their firewall was so strong between the black and the white side of town that the virus would never get to them. So I'm not sure if, if my reading of the discourse around this moment then is entirely idiosyncratic, but I, I have to confess to a bit of whiplash in the coverage. So we've had weeks of coverage in which words have been uttered that we haven't heard in, in decades, structural racism, white supremacy, anti-black racism, it's, it's back in the mainstream and we've been able to talk about that when it comes to policing. But now 
that COVID has returned to the center of the news, it seems like the direct confrontation with these racialized dimensions is relatively unspeakable. So it's, it's as though racism could finally be seen in the disproportionate distribution of death when it comes to racist policing, but that sort of slipped out when it comes to the disproportionate deaths to the scourge of COVID. Now, we know that just talking about disproportionality doesn't mean that we're well on the way to talking about structural racism. We saw this during the last round when the conversation finally turned to, to race, but then it was like a page out of the blaming the victim book, right? We even got sort of culturally specific ways of telling you know, people of color that you know, they can control this by controlling their lifestyle. So with all of this, and now we're in some ways back to the height of the crises, what is your sense of what work the disease's disproportionate impact is doing? How's it contributing to this out of control situation? So I have three thoughts, and which I'll share very briefly. The first is that we're no longer talking about the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on communities of color because it's already become normalized. It's no longer surprising. So that's one answer. The second, though, more perverse look at this might actually be thinking that Black and brown and indigenous people were more infected, made the government care less. Maybe white po people like in power now in the governors, they're like, okay, don't tell them that because now Trump won't send resources. But if he thinks it's white folks, then maybe we'll get some of the ventilators we need or some of the PPE we need. I also want to be clear when, when black folks were being blamed for not understanding or whatever, black folks were more likely to die from COVID-19 for two reasons. We were more likely and still are more likely to be infected because we are more exposed and less protected. And once infected, we are more likely to die because we carry a heavier burden of chronic diseases and have less access to healthcare. We're more exposed in our frontline jobs, but also in the prisons as unhoused people. We're less protected because we don't have the personal protective equipment on those so-called essential jobs. Also don't have the paid sick leave, don't have the you know family and uh, medical leave act stuff, don't even have hazard pay. And then we're more burdened by chronic diseases because we live in disinvested, segregated communities, poisoned, no access to food or green space and the like, and less access to healthcare, not even just access in the neighborhood, but also access in terms of respectful treatment of our conditions. Yes, for, for even those who have full coverage, right? There's still racial bias in the distribution of care. And in the placement of testing centers and in even listening to you, to your symptoms in the ER. And many people, especially at the beginning, black folks were sent home to die, never even tested, never even had a temperature taken. Mm. So thank you so much, uh, Kamara, for getting us started. So at this grave point in the pandemic, and I think that the, the metaphor, the forest fire gone wild, one would think that people would take more seriously the alarms of epidemiologists, those that have been sending them out for months. But not only are some people refusing to wear masks, they're actively protesting against mask wearing mandates recently enacted. And what's worse is that they're using appropriated language from the protest against anti-Black racism, shouting things like, we can't breathe, or saying, 
We refuse to be a slave to the government. We will not wear masks. Putting the breathtaking violence of this rhetorical misappropriation to the side, just, just for a second, I want to ask Jonathan, how do we look at this as a way of seeing how whiteness has been mobilized to animate the grievance politics around public health and safety. I remembered when I saw this, your analysis that while self-preservation might be thought to be the primary directives, when it comes at least to this issue, self-preservation seems to be taking a second seat to whiteness. So how do you relate this to the work that you've been doing under uh, Dying of Whiteness? Well, thank you so much. I'm so honored to be back in this great conversation. And it's also an honor for me to follow uh, Dr. Jones, who's done so much important work in, in this field. I think about this really two ways at the present moment. Um, one is, as you suggest, about really almost the inherent suicidality of, of a form of white supremacy that we've seen kind of building, building, building for a very long time, but particularly so um, over the course of the past uh, 10 years or so in the United States. And that is this idea that basically anti-blackness goes hand in hand with almost anti-whiteness. And, and I say that because a lot of the research that I've done looks at the <laughs> really the, the ways in which policies that are supposed to make white America great again, particularly for working class white Americans, are as dangerous to them as secondhand smoke or living in a house with asbestos all over the place or not wearing your seatbelt when you drive down the street. The policies themselves, the strategies of what it means to maintain whiteness are lethal, particularly to the working class white supporters um, who are supposed to be the foot soldiers for this. And I, in my book, I have a lot of examples for that. I, I think for me, a big one was resistance to the Affordable Care Act among people who actually needed healthcare at the time. In the beginning, people were really for the Affordable Care Act across racial lines in the interviews we were doing in the South. And then this narrative came out that was, this could go to undeserving immigrants or minorities. Uh, this could be something where people could usurp the system and it's your job to lay your body on the line and, and really defend the castle of whiteness. And I think in a way that kind of narrative is one we've seen again and again for social programs we, and, and we saw it again here. We saw it with masks and now to disastrous effect, we're seeing it with the pandemic. I just want to be clear that there are many white people who I interview and I keep talking to who are horrified at this moment. People are really terrified. We just saw in Oklahoma, of all places, that they voted for Medicaid expansion, un unthinkable a while ago. And so I also would say that given the terror of this moment, it's also a potential, a potential for some coalition building where we actually can put safe structures in place. So, so let me pick up on that because that's a moment where it's important for us to talk about what are the political potentials that uh, are presented across many uh, different institutions in this moment. To raise this, I want to bring in a concept that we were talking about when you were last on, the idea of disaster white supremacy. What is able to be done under the color of this crisis? So just a couple days ago, uh, the Trump administration uh, went to the Supreme Court to declare that the entire ACA, Obamacare, must fall. As hundreds of thousands of Americans are having to turn to it for health care because they have or will lose their jobs during this pandemic. Why is it or how is it that President Trump can 
do this, to propose this, to promote this, without fearing that this action will cost him the support of his base. What is this telling us about his read of his base or the reality of his base? I'm so glad you asked me this question. And it's in a way this interesting duality, right? Which is that we've had, I mean, really since the advent of the Affordable Care Act, but particularly in the last three years, a racializing of something like a mask that shouldn't, shouldn't be racialized. Everybody should have healthcare in a country like the United States. It's also important to remember about the Affordable Care Act that it was particularly effective at beginning to close really the unconscionable racial gaps in health insurance. When uh, in 2010, when the Affordable Care Act took effect, 33% of Latinx people in this country didn't have health insurance. 25% of African-American people didn't. Um, it was unbelievable. And the number was only 12% for, for white Americans. And between 2010 and 2016, the Obama administration was very effective at closing that gap by promoting the Affordable Care Act. And what happened when Trump took over is not just a war on the Affordable Care Act, but it was actually particularly targeting the mechanisms that led to enrollment of minoritized populations, outreach programs, uh, the kinds of health insurance that would let one working person have uh, insurance for the family, all these factors. And so really it was not just trying to kill the Affordable Care Act, it was trying to kill the Affordable Care Act as it pertained to helping black and brown people get insurance. And so that was the narrative going up to the pandemic. But now we're seeing how truly fatal for the entire country that narrative is because the victims of all this are not just that our country doesn't have health care at a time of crisis, a, a network of health care, but the Affordable Care Act also promoted public health networks, uh, in healthy communities, all these factors, and not having that, having critiqued that and, and trying to kill it, it set us on a path toward this pandemic disaster. And even knowing all this, now last week, I'm saying we're going to kill the Affordable Care Act in a way with all the data we have, um, it really is another way of targeting black and brown people and bringing the entire country down as the price of that. So, so Jonathan, what is he counting on from his base? Because as Kamara says, yes, the recognition of its disproportionate impact did allow for uh, the country to open up again with the sense that it's not our people, it's those people. Uh, but as people are increasingly laid off as the virus does a spread to recognize at that moment that your president has taken away the fallback that you might have had. Why isn't he worried or why isn't there some real political cost, even among his base, to having done that? I hope it's a miscalculation. Um, I hope that that vote in Oklahoma was sending alarm bells around everywhere because honestly, I want everybody to have healthcare. And as I said, I want everybody to wear a mask. I want us to get through this pandemic. And, and the other important part of it about the Affordable Care Act is you still have health insurance if you lose your job, which is an important point uh, now as well. And so I hope that it's a miscalculation. I hope it becomes the position that sinks the entire ship for him. Unfortunately, what I saw in my research was that the more desperate people became, really the more ideological they became. I was interviewing people in Tennessee who were literally on death's doorstep, who needed health insurance. And here's the Affordable Care Act, handing them free health insurance, which not only would have helped them with care, but helped them pay for medications, avoid medical bankruptcy, all these things. And in their desperate moments, 
people would say to me things. There's a quote in my book, a guy who had liver failure. He said, I know it'll save my life, but I'm not signing up for a program that uh, will benefit Mexicans and welfare claims. That's what he told me. So this idea of this racial script, in a way, it, it preys on this idea that people are so desperate, that, that whiteness is, is so desperate at that moment. And so, again, I hope it's the former narrative that people start to wake up and we start to create national networks, because that's honestly what we need. But I would also say that Trump is creating the conditions of desperation that make people more ideological in, in pathological ways, and that follows some very bad historical scripts. And that's really really what, what I think we have to be wary of is almost through his own body. I mean, what's he doing out there without a mask? He's almost trying to get coronavirus himself to create this desperation narrative. And this desperation, as we know, has not bode well for people of color uh, in this country over the century. So it does raise, uh, I think, a critical question about how do we deal with the politics of desperation? How do we deal with the way in which whiteness is being used to stoke that desperation um, and activate it as politics? So as I mentioned in the introduction, we were originally gonna call this episode Black Sisyphus based on the idea that we'd push the ball up the hill in regards to discussing how racism interacts with COVID and, and how it shapes the virus's impact. Now, uh, looking around, one would think that the ball has sort of fallen back down the hill because we can't have two conversations at the same time. And it, it doesn't escape me that um, in the same state where the black vote was being suppressed last week is a state where police officers armed with guns and no-knock warrants killed Breonna Taylor in her own home. What are the links that seem so difficult to sustain between death by inequity during a pandemic and death by police violence? Why is it so hard to hold these two uh, pandemics simultaneously together? I think the first big problem is that people just refuse in this moment to have a structural analysis. A few bad apples of the police. It's a few bad Karens and Chads out there, you know, acting up. I mean, there's a, a failure just to have a real understanding of white structural racism. And I think that if we, you know, really had that framework and we really understood what's going on, a lot of this falls into place. But then you gotta layer it with new methodologies, right? One of the new methodologies right now is virus voter suppression. Because you got a virus and you already been doing voter suppression. And so it's you know merged and come together in a very bad way. Because what's at stake is power and advantage. You know, who's gonna have the power? Who's gonna have the advantage? And white structural racism is constructed to make sure that whites always have the power and the advantage. And it fights, therefore, with anything that starts to unravel it. So as African-Americans, as Latinos, as progressive whites, we're coming together and creating this new coalition of, to elect you know, different people. Folks said, oh, no, no, no. You know, we got to kill all of that. And that's how we got into the whole voter suppression Era. It wasn't just the Shelby case. The Shelby case came actually two years after the advent of voter suppression, uh, which really came out of the 2010 election results in that midterm when 25 million people did not vote uh, who had voted in 2008. One other element that we got to get into this conversation is the element of genocide. 
let's be very clear. A lot of the people who are out there protesting in Michigan, uh, in Wisconsin, here in Maryland, these people believe in genocide. They aren't into, we just want to subjugate the other folks. We don't want to keep them out of our neighborhood. They believe very strongly there should be a race war, and they believe that people should be dead. And Stephen Miller, sitting up in the White House, come on now. Remember when we were starting a couple of uh, months ago, I was asking, is it too soon to use the G word, right? And a few people were saying, well, perhaps, but let me just say a few things that have happened in the last month that people still don't really seem to be talking about, at least the mainstream media as much as one might suggest. So just last month, an Air Force Sergeant, uh, Stephen Carrillo, killed uh, a federal security officer, a black federal security officer, wounded his partner in Oakland, California, later fatally shot a county sheriff and wounded four other officers. Now, that happened presumably as part of something called the Boogaloo Movement. It's trying to start a race war, a civil war. And he's not alone. There are other cases involving a plot to bomb a medical facility, other ambushes of law enforcement, ambushes involving some people who are part of or formerly part of the military. And of course, there's a string of uh, black bodies that are found hanging. Many of us think they are lynchings. They have not, though. None of these things have gotten the attention that the fantasy of the Antifa has gotten. And let's remember as well, the FBI has come up with a new designation called Black Identity Extremist, right? Um, now, Black Identity Extremists, whoever they are, have never killed a police officer, not responsible for any ambushing whatsoever, have not killed anyone. Yet, to hear President Trump talk about it, it's the Black identity extremists that we need to be worried about, rather than these people who are not just killing civilians, they are killing the people that supposedly Trump cares about the most, police officers. What is this telling us? Is this part of a longer history? Is this an exceptional moment? How do you read this asymmetry between where all the attention is going and what's really happening? And Kim, it's, it's, a long, it's a long trajectory. Uh, what people need to understand is that uh, during the Civil War, the South went to France and put a petition before the nation of France and said that they were being enslaved by the North. Their liberties, their civil rights were, you know, basically being infringed, that they were uh, being treated, you know, as subhuman. They wrote this stuff uh, all during the time that they were, you know, engaging in active slavery and fighting for its preservation. So let's be clear, you know, this, this, this appropriation goes all the way back. When you read Higginbotham's In the Matter of Color, just read it and see the appropriation that is in those statutes from Virginia and the other uh, commonwealths and, and uh, states that he covers in that uh, brilliant book. Uh, so I just want people to understand that this is not new. The trajectory has been long, but what's urgent at this moment is that you got millions of whites unemployed. Whenever, my dad taught me one thing when I was a girl and I didn't understand why he taught me it. And he said, Barbara, always know that when times get hard for whites, their resentment against blacks grows. It will rise. You know, be aware of that. Don't ever forget it. You know, watch your back. 
Uh, so, you know, and that's true today uh, because people are so upset. So all of these people out here teaching and yelling about hate uh, who are saying, you know, your problems are those black folks, those Latino folks, those whoever, gay folks, I mean, whoever, you know, they can hate on, um, that this gives them an outlet instead of addressing the major structural reasons. And I think that what we got to do in this moment is to teach. We got to, you know, really get in there. You know, it's urgent to teach to the white community. Uh, you know, there's a failure in the organizing, and that's why I'm happy to see some of the organizing being different this time, where there is a greater focus on talking and making the white community face up to the fact that it has to change. It has to change its ideology. It has to break its chains of, you know, the past. It has to be able to escape the orbit of, uh, you know, white uh, ideology. There's a lot of white talk going on right now, but I want to just be very clear that that's where the urgency is because otherwise white structural racism will do what it always do. It's, it counts on inertia to win always, that it will reset and restart. And, and circumnavigation of it, right? The sensibility, and, and this is one of the reasons why I found it remarkable that there is a conversation, or at least there was, about white supremacy because most of the received wisdom over the last decade or so has been to go around it, not to go straight through it. And, you know, you mentioned, and I, I want to bring up a, just a really quick uh, clip here, when you mentioned the how how the South went to France to to basically say that racial justice was you know enslaving them, that thesis that being forced away from white supremacy is a violation of our civil rights is is not new, and it was actually one of the rhetorical uh, gestures in the civil rights movement. So let let's see if we can see this clip really quickly. I also think that uh, uh, it is uh, in violation to my civil rights. If uh, someone can say, you must serve me, if you own, if a man, if a man owns an eating establishment, uh, if he can't choose whom he pleases to ch serve or not to serve, that can affect me and you and anyone else. So there's not much new under the sun. Moving now uh, to Kianga, there was uh, the mention of Aileen Higginbotham's book on In the Matter of Color, and a very important piece of his analysis was to talk about how the paddy rollers, the slave patrols that are in many ways the precursor to modern policing, really were uh, designed to support and restore order as against the anxieties of whites around uh, the possible uprising of African-Americans, particularly in uh, areas where African-Americans were the majority. But one very interesting thing about it was, initially, uh, those who rode the patrols were people who actually had an economic interest in the slaves. Uh, when then whites who were not slaveholders became members of the patty rollers, the resentments were so profound that sometimes they had to be withdrawn from the slave patrols because they would actually kill and otherwise maim the slaves. The enslaved people, because their labor capacity were, would be threatened by this, uh, there was, on these rare occasions, some interest in protecting them. It's so fascinating to see the thematics 
that you, Barbara, were talking about, that Jonathan, you were talking about, the more the desperation, the higher the resentment can sometimes become. And so I'm wanting to go to you, uh, Kianga, on this because for some, there is a question about whether um, this resentment, uh, whether uh, the unions that sometimes are mouthpieces uh, for these sensibilities are really standing in the way of the energies that are galvanizing now towards police pr- reform. So yesterday, the president of the police union in New York basically said that the $1 billion cut and we can talk about whether that was really a cut from the uh, New York Police Department, uh, was basically going to endanger everybody. It's as though people are going to be climbing through windows. And consequently, this fear-mongering is being used by his union and others to get in the way of the defunding and refunding that's going around. So what is the way in which we can understand their power to do this? Why is it that police departments are treated as though they're recession-proof? I think there are a, a couple of things that are, are going on. One is the virus has exposed deep inequities in U.S. society, but it has also exposed the extent to which uh, our social welfare state, or the premise of it, uh, is broken. And the best example of that is the way that police departments expect to never be touched by the logic of austerity, meaning that uh, they believe themselves to be above budget cuts and layoffs when every other public institution incurs that. In Philadelphia, where I live, 200 staff from the public libraries, almost all of whom are Black, uh, have been laid off. In every city, schools, we have become so used to public schools either being shut down Uh, having their budget cuts or having teachers laid off. It is so part of the culture of public education in the United States that no one blinks an eye at the fact that public school teachers spend hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars out of their own pockets to cover uh, uh, budget cuts. Um, And yet the police remain impervious. And the notion that you would shift even a single penny in the midst of catastrophic budgets because tax collections have dropped because of the virus and people have been told to stay home and out of work, this is such a completely foreign idea uh, for the police that they are completely freaking out right now. And I think the reason for that is primarily because the police have been seen as a public policy of last resort, as as the the holders of law and and order. And so when African-Americans historically become so connected to poverty, unemployment, um, and all of those things that are seen as disorderly, uh, then the police conceive of themselves and are deployed as such by public officials. For the police, they see themselves as, well, every other aspect of the, the, the state is shutting down. If it's welfare, unemployment, we know that evictions are on the horizon that we are the thin blue line between chaos and maintaining social order. Um, And this is how they conceptualize themselves. Ronald Reagan said in 1966 that the police uh, were the thin line keeping the jungle at bay. He repeated this characterization in the 1980s. Trump, who has encouraged the police to be brutal, who has laughed off police brutality, sees things in in a similar light. And so I think that is part of the, the framework and the logic that means that 
the police are immune to the kinds of cuts, austerity, and belt tightening that every other public institution uh, has been told that they must learn how to do more with less over the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether in this moment in which the police have shown themselves to, to be bloated, to be belligerent, to be brazen in their uh, unnecessarily coercive responses to protesters, whether there's a sense that maybe they've gone too far. I'm noting that, for example, uh, Bob Kroll, the president of the Minneapolis Police Union, He's been involved in three shootings, 17 different complaints. In 2019, he's seen uh, praising Trump for taking the handcuffs off and letting the cops do their jobs. And then you have uh, the Buffalo police officers who the unit actually walked off the job for the effort of, of the, the department to discipline one officer for assaulting a 75-year-old white man. And of course, we've got video after video showing the police doing what we know they do, but this time they're doing it with the eyes of the world literally on them. So my question is, have they miscalculated this time? Is, is there a reason to be hopeful? I think yes, and there are, two, there are two things that are working here. One is that um, the, the cameras and the ability for ordinary people to be armed with cameras has really broken the veil of segregation. So black people have known that the police are lawless and brutal for all of time. Since emancipation, this has been a fact of, of black life. Um, but what the, the cameras allow is for other people to look into the experiences uh, of, of African-Americans in a way that is inescapable. And so the lynching of George Floyd was a glimpse into the reality that every black person in America either knows personally or knows someone who has had to deal with uh, not being killed by the police, but the humiliation of second-class citizenship. And you are a second-class citizen if the police have the right to stop you, to question you, to beat you up, and to even kill you with impunity. And so now many more people get to look in on that. The second thing, where you have the simultaneous protests all over the country, there's a sharp contrast. We have been talking for months now about healthcare workers who are wrapping themselves in plastic bags, uh, who are using masks that are only intended to be used once, having to use them for weeks at a time. And then we look at these cops who are armed to the teeth, who have every set bit of technology, who are geared up, they look like RoboCop. And there's, there's a question, why are the police getting every single nickel in cities and are armed to the teeth and look like they're ready to go to war and healthcare workers are dressed in, in plastic bags? And so I think the contrast has become unmistakable. In addition to seeing the police run cars into demonstrations, just beating the hell out of people, I think the convergence of those three factors has said to people, maybe we need to rethink this glorification of police. Maybe we need to stop thinking of the police as soldiers at war for whom we can never question because their behavior has been abominable. 
over the last several months. And everyone has been watching it because of all the way that these protests have forced the media to look at what is happening. And, and it raises then the question of whether what they see, what many people who didn't know see is disruptive enough to their sensibilities about how policing is supposed to be so that they uh, mobilize with us or whether they're pretty okay with that. I have to say, I'm, I'm really curious. I actually live in a, a neighborhood with other uh, faculty and there was an effort on the part of some folks to put up a Black Lives Matter sign and the uh, businesses in the area were horrified and ended up closing the businesses for a day and hiring armed security guards. This is how much the idea of separation, the thin blue line, as you said earlier, seems to be uh, deeply internalized by many people who may be Democrats, may be folks who otherwise uh, would sign on to the ideals of racial equality, but not um, what needs to be done with respect to policing in order to realize that. Do we have any sense of what the language and the politics of shifting those sensibilities has to be right now? I think that we are in an incredibly fluid moment where there are lots of possibilities and potential. And we can see the protests have been having an impact thus far. So that is borne out in these, you know, shocking polls. 71% of white people think that there's a problem with racism in the country. This is unprecedented. 60% of white people say that they support Black Lives Matter. This is unprecedented. It, it, when asked five or six years ago, those numbers were not that high. And so I think that that's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story. And the direction of where that sentiment goes, whether that sentiment is mobilized, whether it is turned into more concrete demand, um, has everything to do with politics and the types of organizing that we engage in and the strength of our, our movements. That, that won't change on its own because you can guarantee that even as ideas are shifting, this country is deeply polarized. The left is growing, but the right is growing as well. And they have a separate set of explanations for what is happening. And they'll have a different answer around Black Lives Matter. Trump said uh, Black Lives Matter is a hate slogan. Rudy Giuliani called it uh, you know, some Marxist movement that wants to destroy uh, the police. This is a line that is developing within the Republican Party. So there will be a battle, a political battle, an ideological battle over, uh, you know, do we support defunding do we support the redistribution of resources away from the police and to public hospitals, public schools, and public libraries, or do we not? It could go in many directions, but we can fight for a direction that moves in the, in the way that, that we want to, but that's a political struggle that we have to engage in. Thanks so much, Kianga, for um, your insights. Before we move on, I want to say this. It's been 110 days since three officers in Louisville murdered Breonna Taylor. Brett Hampkinson, who was also accused of sexual assault by two women, was fired 100 days after her murder. None of the officers, including John Mattingly and Miles Cosgrove, have been arrested, and those two are still collecting a paycheck. 110 days. 
Okay. So moving on to our round table, Barbara, I want to come back to uh, you on the virus voting. You know, you talked about the bad apples approach to policing. Is there a bad apples approach to the problem with voting? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, look at the entire theory underlying the Shelby case. The horrifying reality is that when left to their own devices, states will suppress the black vote. There's just no doubt about it. They'll suppress the Latino vote, no doubt about it. They will suppress the Native American vote, no doubt about it. Uh, certain states will suppress the Asian vote. They'll suppress the student vote. Uh, they'll suppress single white women voters. They'll suppress LGBTQIA voters, people they consider, you know, progressive in any uh, form. This is our reality, that this is ideological, that we've been in a result-oriented politic for years, for decades, where people just distort everything to get what they want. I mean, the entire Shelby case was a distortion of reality. So much of what we watch now, we our eyes just blink when we hear, you know, Black Lives Matter, it's a hate crime, you know, or, or whatever. You know, when I did the uh, Map of Shame, uh, you know, I was trying to alert people that it's not linear that you know that you have zigs and zags at the same time so you can elect a black president and have unprecedented uh institution of voter suppression that you can be talking about the power of black women vote to the democratic party and at the same time have a focus on vote by mail that hurts the black vote uh significantly has everyone forgotten that there's something called the digital divide and that you have millions of households who don't have access to the internet and a great majority of those are what? People of color. And so what we're seeing around the country is that as these states are saying, you got to apply for your ballot, go on the internet and make that application or, or, or somehow you miraculously are going to hear that you can call some kind of telephone number because they're not going on the air, paying for time, putting up billboards, doing anything to reach out to voters to let them know that they could call or, you know, they can do some uh, non-internet uh, realities. Uh, you know, African-Americans in Pennsylvania, 30% almost, 29% have no access to any internet at all. I'm talking about smartphones. I'm talking about anything. Uh, and we're seeing already these reports that came out about what's happening to our poor school children. 20% of children in Boston, black, not showing up at all to any school uh, process on virtually online. So we gotta be realistic that we're, unless we're gonna put money into immediately, somehow overnight, uh, solving the internet problem to somehow rectifying centuries of bad education, uh, unless we're gonna put money into all this, you know, somehow we're gonna make this all happen miraculously before November, you gotta have something else. You gotta have good voter options. Meaning you can't just be talking about vote by mail. You can't have a single shot approach. You got to have a multi-dimensional ability for voters to engage in the electoral process. And the important thing is for people to realize that there are such options for folks who really want to know more. And I hope that's everyone. You should visit the Transformative Justice website for information about what some of the better options are to make sure that all of us have access to uh, this important democratic decision-making moment. Thank you, Barbara. Uh, Kamara, I want to come back to you because sometimes people talk about race, 
as the, the factor, but, but you point out it's not race, it's racism. Um, and we're talking about public health. Uh, racism is in and of itself a public health issue. So for those of us who are not part of the public health discourse, tell us what the significance of that intervention is in the way we think about and talk about and intervene in these racial disparities. Well, I think the first thing is that many people in this country still think of race as being biology, right? But if we were to ask just a general cross-section of people on the street, what do you think the variable race measures? They would say, well, it's social class, you know, or somebody might say, oh, it's culture, or other people say it's genes, but race is just a rough proxy for social class, and that's because of structural racism, you know, the disinvestment in our neighborhoods and all. It is rougher still for culture because so-called black folks could have just come from Haiti or been raised in the rural south and uh, urban north or, you know, Somalia or lots of places, not the same culture. It is meaningless for genes because we have mapped the human genome. There is no basis in the human genome for racial subspecies, but what it exactly measures is the social interpretation of how one looks in this race-conscious society. And the same race that might get checked off for me in an emergency department if I go in because I'm short of breath, and that becomes part of a health statistic, is the same race a police officer notices, or a judge in a courtroom, or a teacher in a classroom. You know, it's the same race that a taxi driver notices. So that race, is the substrate on which racism operates day to day. That is how we go from understanding race to knowing that racism, which is the system of structuring opportunity and assigning value based on that so-called race, based on the social interpretation of how one looks, that system. So, so Kamar, I'm going to ask you to say that again, because I know some people were taking that down. What is that definition? OK. Racism is a system of structuring opportunity and of assigning value based on the social interpretation of how one looks, which is what we call race, that unfairly disadvantages some individuals and communities, unfairly advantages other individuals and communities, and saps the strength of the whole society through the waste of human resources. So, so the reason why I wanted you to, to stop and say that again is, you know, a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing. Some people say that since race is socially constructed, it therefore is a phantom, it, it, it's not real. And so you are giving us a sense that this construction actually has material consequences and it has material consequences for the body. It has material consequences for public health. I think that's something that, that people often miss and I, I would suspect that that missing actually undermines our capacity to understand what needs to be done in order to address some of the consequences of the construction of race. I would go further and say that um, for people who are interested to Google Kamara Jones Gartner's tale, I talk about three levels of racism that impact health, that turn into increased asthma or COVID-19 or diabetes and the like. Of the three levels, structural racism is the most important. It is important for us to recognize that the most important impacts of racism happen without bias because they are usually 
manifest as lack of action, inaction in the face of need. That's how st structural racism works these days. That's an important insight for us. To Absolutely. And, and I think that's a concept that runs across all of the issue areas that we've been talking about in this episode and also in some of the earlier episodes. So if anything uh, that we hope comes out of this moment is the permanent retirement of the idea that uh, racism and, and race can be captured by the idea of being colorblind. Hopefully we can move away from this idea that uh, once we denounce the idea of the racist in the woodpile, that we can be pretty happy with these tremendously maldistributed consequences of our history of race and racism. So uh, let's just hope that that's where we are now but in order to get there, in order to mobilize these new ideas, we have to have some sense about what the political possibilities are. And so for this, I, I want to come back to you, uh, Jonathan, because you were saying you hope this is a moment where uh, there is more traction, there's more of a possibility in uh, contesting the ways in which racism, white supremacy in particular, has been used as a glue uh, to hold disparate interests together between uh, white elites and, 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 and whites who are going to take the brunt of much of what's happening. I guess my question is, what do we do? What's your sense of how we're able to grapple with the fact that at least 35 to 40% of the population right now seems to be utterly undisturbed by a president that is leading millions of people into COVID infection and death, largely because he speaks to their sense of identity. We can't circumvent this anymore. So what is the strategy to go right through it? What can we possibly do uh, when rational discourse doesn't seem to be helping? Well, I think it's great. I'm actually going to pick up on what Dr. Jones was saying a, a moment ago, because I think it is such an urgent moment. And I think it, it's absolutely right that so many things are at stake, where so many people are, are terrified for, for a variety of reasons, and so many of our social fissures are being exposed right now. And so I think part of the issue is a logic issue, and I'll get to the Trump part in a minute, except to say that just like racism is structural, so too can anti-racism be structural. It's of course important for people like myself to reflect about how we've been beneficiaries of effectively an apartheid system, but it's also important to recognize that to fix structural racism, it's things like, let's fix the healthcare system, let's fix the education system, let's give everybody internet. It turns out those structural factors will improve life for our entire society. So the last part of what Dr. Jones said about how it saps resources from the society, that is so true. I mean, if we fixed the racial wealth gap, for example, our GDP would go up <laughs> like six or 7%. If we gave everybody access to the internet, our productivity would go up if we had more education. So I think now is a moment on one hand in an idealistic world to say that anti-racism as a, as a structural project is so important, and that's. But Jonathan, here, here, let me let me throw this back at you because I think most people on this call, I think these uh, ideas that that you're expressing are things that will find a, a receptive audience. I think the question is, can we move that agenda when it now becomes clear that about forty percent of the voting population 
is perfectly happy with this distribution of death. And some of them actually want to bring it about. So can, can we move uh, this agenda without having some strategy for dealing with that? But, you know, I, I think that's exactly right. And I'm not trying to be naive about this. I'll just say that part of the issue for me is that when you when you have actually the structural racist institutions themselves becoming structurally anti-racist, for me, that's an easier point than trying to change individual people's minds, which, of course, is something I, I think about a lot. But I do want to highlight that the fact that you know, at least right now, businesses and banks and medicine. I mean, we just published an article in JAMA last last month using this this new framework called structural competency to talk about how the healthcare system can actually be a wealth redistribution and 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 truth and reconciliation system. And so, JAMA hadn't even published the word racism a couple of months ago. And so, I do think that really thinking about who are the structural drivers, the institutions that created this problem and getting them to, you know, the, the question was, where is there hope? And for me, in a way, that, that's where there is hope. But I would also say that, of course, there is so much kind of counter narrative, this, this racial narrative, and this is not new, it's gone back to, I mean, if you read Du Bois on Black Reconstruction, that was a perfect moment for everybody to work together and this racial narrative of basically somebody's out to take away your white privilege, that, that has led us on this path of destruction. Reconstruction after was a, a perfect moment where we could have had a different narrative. And now is a moment where we could potentially have a different narrative. I'm not trying to be naive. I'm just saying that really this is a moment of, of trauma and hopefully we can, we can change course. I'm glad you raised the question of uh, Reconstruction, the possibility that was squandered, partly because of vote suppression, partly because allies in the North uh, grew tired of the project of racial uh, reform, grew tired of uh, having to struggle for power. So there are some ways in which it feels like this election coming up is as consequential uh, as the election of 1876. So Kianga, um, we are moving into this moment. There are some people who are hoping that November will be the moment that we can be rid of this nightmare. Yet I wonder, our eyes are fully open to what's coming, what's coming over the next couple of months. And let's just say that the current occupant of the White House is voted out. Should we be concerned about what's going to happen between November and January? I think we need to be concerned what happens after January. I mean, I know if Trump decides that he doesn't want to leave, that will present its own series of problems. But I'm concerned about this idea of getting back to normal. All we need to do is get Trump out of the White House and forget the reasons why he was elected uh, in the first place and the level of disaffection, the disgust, hopelessness, and exhaustion that helped to put him into this situation. So now even post-election is not the time for complacency. Uh, we have to continue to fight, even with the Democratic administration, if that happens, we have to continue to fight for the things that we know are necessary to make Black Lives Matter. Thank you, thank you. Uh, uh, Kamara, I'm coming back to you for what should happen. Listeners want to be activated where can you direct them? What do you think they should do? I think that it's important for us to not just feel happy about this naming of racism, the asserting of Black Lives Matter. I think that we have to make sure that this nation doesn't fall back 
into what I'm describing as the somnolence, the sleepiness of racism denial. And so that means that we have to encourage everybody to start engaging in action. If you just articulate that Black Lives Matter, six months from now, you might forget, why did I say that? But if you are acting, then you won't forget why you're acting. And I would say, we've seen so many times that people have talked about racism, and then we fall back into this very seductive denial of racism stance. We must keep on. I just want to say my anti-racism policy agenda starts with reparations to descendants of Africans enslaved in the US. The second thing is decarceration or abolition of prisons. And the third is massive investment around in black communities in particular, but in all communities according to need, but massive investment. You have to restore not just income, but wealth and especially around families and children so that the phrase disadvantaged child will be met with a with surprise because it will be inconceivable that any child would be born into disadvantage. Thank you so much. Jonathan, what is one thing you want to direct people to do or to know or to become a part of? I completely agree that we're not going back to normal. This is the normal. And that's terrifying because of the virus, but it's also not a bad thing because the issues are real and they're right in front of us. And, and on one hand, I completely agree that whoever wins the election, the fight really to address these issues that many of us on this great panel have been working on for so long, it's, it's really a moment where everything is out in the open. But I also think that it's important to remember that elections really do matter. Um, elections matter for the allocation of resources, for so many of the structural changes that we're talking about. I, I watched that um, that really terrifying Cambridge Analytica documentary where they said that the goal of the, all this misinformation wasn't to get people to vote for the other side. It was to get them to think that it didn't matter who they voted for because both sides were the same and get people to actually not vote. And so the forces of kind of voter suppression are, are psychological, they're technological, and I, I really think that in a way we're having this crisis and we have, a, have a, a chance to have a referendum on this crisis in November. So I think that this activism leading toward the election, I think is, is very important. Thank you so much. And last but certainly not least, Barbara Arnwine, take us home. All right now. So everybody, I just want to say one other thing, dismantling structural racism is not an overnight job. It's not a one-year job. It is a real fight. I mean, we're talking about some, a monster that has been embedded for over 400 plus years that has fought every, every battle ever to dismantle it. Uh, so we got to be really clear that just winning one budget uh, battle isn't going to be the answer. It's going to take a lot of real, real destructuring, real dismantlement on the voter options. Be very clear, we need vote by mail as one option, not the only option. Anybody who tells you that is insane. I don't care if it's the Democratic Party or anybody else, it's insane. In addition to vote by mail, you need to have in-person voting that's safe. You gotta have enough you know, places that people can get to in black communities, in brown communities, stop this nonsense of having as you had in uh, Louisville, just one place for 600,000 people, ridiculous. Don't fall for that. Third thing is you gotta have expanded early voting. Over 50 to 70% of all African-American voters will vote early because of our circumstances, all the realities of workforce, uh, lives, etc. Last one is that none of these states are doing it right. Uh, not one state has instituted universal drive-up voting. They can do it, folks. Curbside voting is really safe. It's 
It's one of the best options out there. Not one state has embraced it. Uh, and instead, they're putting voters through what I call voter abuse, have grandmothers falling on canes. They got granddads falling on canes, people standing in our uh, lines for two and a half hours when they could have just driven up and done curbside voting because they have the tablets, they have the technology, they know how to do it. Uh, and it exists for you know people with disabilities. They can do better. And the last thing is we need you. Everybody who's listening, you got to say to yourself, when you look in the mirror, say, I am a voting rights champion. That's who I am in this moment. Uh, I can be many other things, but part of who I am is a voting rights cha champion, and I'm going to be on the front line of this battle because they're talking about 50,000 white vigilantes at the polls to threaten, harass, and drive away and discourage uh, people of color. We can't allow that to happen. I want everybody to go to votingrightsalliance.org. Votingrightsalliance.org. Sign up, become part of the army that is gonna take to protect our vote. Thank you, Kim. Intersectionality Matters is produced and edited by Julia Sharp Levine. Additional support was provided by Emmett O'Malley, Michael Kramer, and Alana Kane. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.